From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar, sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. More than 4 billion prescriptions for medications are written each year in this country, and for many people, trying to manage multiple prescriptions is overwhelming. Changing the mindset from being a patient to really being in control and understanding that every choice that we make could potentially have consequences really will help patients better be a liaison to make sure that what they're taking is going to be safe to use with what they're prescribed. We'll discuss the do's and don'ts of managing prescription drugs with Mayo Clinic pharmacist Jeremy Anderson. Also on the program, screening for endometrial cancer and tinnitus when the ringing in your ears won't stop. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar, sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Taking a prescription drug can be a confusing experience. How often should I take this medication? Do I need to take it with or without food? What do I do if I miss a dose? Can I take it with other drugs that I'm on? And why am I taking this drug in the first place? Sometimes you take so many you forget, Sanj. I haven't re- quite reached that stage, Tracy, but I take your word for it. Okay. And taking several medications, some in the morning, others just before bed, can multiply the challenges of making sure you stay on schedule and get the intended benefit. Here to help us through the do's and don'ts of managing prescription medications is Mayo Clinic pharmacist Jeremy Anderson. Welcome to the program, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. So people these days, I guess I can say people these days because I am in this boat. I am managing medications. I've mm-hmm. got the bedtime ones and the morning ones and then vitamins. So managing your prescriptions is what we're going to talk about today. How has this changed over the last decade or two decades? Um, just within the last decade, and you can certainly point to the few years um, immediately prior, we've seen an explosion in the amount of over-the-counter items, things that used to be prescription are now available over-the-counter. Common items like this are over-the-counter now intranasal medications. So nasal medications you can use for allergies as Mm -hmm. well as prescription allergy medications that have gone over-the-counter and medications to help treat reflux. But if I I was a patient, how would I stay on, on top of all of that? Because you can buy all of these, and sometimes you actually don't even think it's a medication you're taking, just a, a vitamin. So how, how does a patient stay on top of that and liaise that information back to their healthcare provider? Patients need to change the way they think about those things. Just because you buy something over-the-counter doesn't mean it couldn't impact the prescriptions that you take, uh, whether it's now an over-the-counter medication or if it's a vitamin or supplement. So um, changing the the mindset from being a patient to really being in control and understanding that every choice that we make could potentially have consequences um, really will help patients better be a liaison, talk to their healthcare providers, certainly speak with pharmacists, speak with their prescribers to uh, make sure that what they're taking is going to be safe to use with what they're prescribed. And are you finding that the healthcare providers are now speaking more amongst each other as opposed to operating in certain silos? Are you finding that they're all acting as one and transferring that information amongst each other? Absolutely. One of the things that I think has improved at Mayo Clinic over the last several years was um, utilization of 
everybody across the healthcare spectrum. Um, for instance, in the setting in which I work, I work in the clinic with prescribers, and that allows a free dialogue back and forth. Hey, my patient is started on this mm-hmm. over-the-counter or this supplement. Can you tell me something about it? Is it going to impact the prescriptions that I have for the patient? So um, those... Uh, those avenues of having a more open communication and dialogue across have, I think, really um, improved the care that people can get. Until you just mentioned it, I hadn't even considered the role of the physician in this, actually. I was thinking about the pharmacist and me going to pick out my prescription. When I go now, uh, they will say, do you want to speak with the pharmacist? And you can step off to the side and speak with the pharmacist. But I'm not even kidding. I hadn't even thought about talking to the doctor about my prescriptions. Absolutely. I'm embarrassed. You're not alone at all. (laughs) Um, Most people even will uh, sit down and talk to patients in clinic. They'll bring in their medications. And a lot of times they don't bring in the things that they're taking Mm -hmm. over the counter. Uh, They don't bring in the supplements because it goes back to what you had asked before when we were talking about changing the mindset of thinking of everything that you can put into your body is potentially impacting uh, your health, your prescriptions, you know, how, how you're being treated. One thing that I've seen, especially from a personal standpoint, my father was very active, but now he's taking multiple medications. Mm-hmm. H- how does one stay on top of all of that? Because obviously the timing uh, varies from day to day or even morning, afternoon, or evening. Mm-hmm. That's a, a great question, and one of the things that I encourage every uh, patient or person that I sit down with is to um, maybe ask some more questions about how they can safely manage that. Um, as we get into the point where more and more people are leaving doctor's offices with prescriptions, uh, there's some older information, I think, from around 2005 that said that two out of every three uh, patients that leave a doctor's office leave with a prescription. Uh, and so you think about that, that's just adding complexity to regimens. And one of the things that I encourage people to really rethink about is using uh, organizational tools. Certainly there are reminders that you can get. You can get watches to remind you to take medications. Um, you can do with smartphones, um, get a text message. You can set up other Mm. ways to help remind yourself to take medications. But one of the most basic things and one of the most powerful things that I've found is patients just saying, it's okay for me to use a pillbox. Yeah. (laughs) A medication organizer, a lot of times from what I've seen in in talking to people is they feel like it maybe takes away some of the control that they have and that that's, well, that's something that you, you do when you can't manage them or when you're too old or you have too many things and you can't manage. And I tried to talk about that and reframe it and think, you know, if we're really asking you to take five or six medications and as you had brought up multiple medications throughout the day this Mm -hmm. one should be taken half an hour before you eat a meal and this one should be taken with food and this one can't be with it taken with any other medication Um, it's really tricky you know everyone has quite a lot going on in their lives we're in the age of information and you have just things you're bombarded with all the time so um, the way that I like to ask people to frame that is why not think about it as taking one of those extra elements of potential for error out of the equation. So um, using a pillbox to say, I'm going to sit down once a week, I'm going to fill the pillbox. Because you can get ones that have the morning, they've got all different day segments. They're huge. Absolutely. They can be as complicated as uh, as you can imagine, (laughs) Um, but there could be simple ones too. Sure. And uh, being able to do that, sit down, do that on a regular basis, maybe once a week, take the time to do so, really frees you up to not have to think about it other than let's look 
my medications are due. The solution is we need to get uh, maybe Coach or Coco Chanel to go into the pillbox making business, and then <laughs> right. it'll become all the right. rage. Absolutely. <laughs> We're talking about how to best manage prescription drugs with Mayo Clinic pharmacist Jeremy Anderson. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, myth or matter of fact, if I miss a dose of my medication, it's usually okay to take two doses the next day to make it up. Is that a myth or is that a fact? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're talking about the do's and don'ts of managing prescription drugs with Mayo Clinic pharmacist Jeremy Anderson. And so, Jeremy, myth or matter of fact, if I miss a dose of my medication, it's usually okay to take two doses the next day to make up for it. Is that a myth or a fact? That would be a myth. <laughs> a big um, myth. A big myth, yeah. <laughs> Most medications... Uh, are designed to be taken on their schedule. And if you forget to take a medication, if it's something you've been using for quite a while, say it's a blood pressure medication and you've been taking it for two years, if you miss a dose here and there, it's not really going to be much of a problem. Uh, but if you take two doses at the same time, it can cause a significant problem. Sure. Uh, it can cause your blood pressure to drop, people to feel generally mm-hmm. a lot worse. And a lot of times when that happens and we turn and say, boy, that medication, I shouldn't be taking it. Mm-hmm. I take myself off the medication altogether. Um, and there are instances all throughout where taking two doses of a medication can be particularly harmful. So sure. we definitely discourage people to um, not do that. The timing of it uh, leads me to this other myth or matter of fact, or it's just a question about traveling when taking your prescriptions and you go into a different time zone. Okay, I usually take this pill at six. Should I be taking it at five? Should I? What should I do? Should I just switch to the time zone taking? So what do you do when you travel and it affects the timing of your medication? Depending on the type of medication that you're taking, it really would be a good idea to discuss that with your prescriber, with your pharmacist. Um, if you're going for a short trip, you won't need to change much about how you do your routine. Uh, you certainly can take your prescriptions and your over-the-counters and your supplements on your typical schedule. Just do it on that new time zone. Um, if you're going to be gone for longer, then it may make sense to shift that, but uh, either your prescriber or your pharmacist can help making that transition as easy as possible. Jeremy, we, we see a lot of uh, patients who are having surgery mm-hmm. and they're not sure which medications to take and stop. Who should they be asking those questions to? That really should be, I feel the pharmacist can have a, a very important role in that, um, but their prescriber, the person that's saying it's okay for you to undergo surgery, um, really should be able to, if nothing else, ask a colleague, ask a pharmacist, which for sure should I have the patient take the morning of the procedure? Do we need to stop something four or five days beforehand or seven days beforehand? Um, those uh, Those sorts of questions are very common, and it's for good reason because you don't want to do anything that's going to jeopardize something like a surgical procedure. And once in a while, if we um, don't get our medications changed around correctly for those procedures, we can have some problems. Your um, overall goal is to increase the collaboration between patients, their pharmacists, and their doctors. Probably it would be fair to say, although I'm taking my fair share of medications, but the people who take multiple medications are older folks, and it might be hard for them to think, mm, I don't know if I want to be part of this team. Mm-hmm. I'll leave that up to the experts to just give me the medication that I need. So how are you getting that message across that you really do need to be part of this conversation? Um, try to educate patients on uh, on a one-on-one and daily basis about the reason for taking the medication, because 
strongly believe that knowledge is power in this respect. If someone understands why they're taking a medication or what could happen if they don't take the medication, it really gives them a little bit more understanding and, and knowledge and power to say, um, you know, I definitely should be taking this medication uh, or maybe I should ask my, my prescriber about something else if there's even a reason for taking this. I think that's a great point. We see, Tracy, a lot of patients uh, who are on various medications and they say, I take the small little purple pill or the, <laughs> or the pink pill. And really, if they took more ownership and had that list just simply in their wallet would, would really help us. Jeremy, another uh, common um, question that you've probably answered many times, uh, what do you do when the medications have a pass an expiration date? Uh, do you advise that there's a bit of leeway, you can still take it, or should you just dispose of that medication? What do you advise? That is um, an excellent question and one of the points that I definitely wanted to make today. Recently, and the last one I think was in September of 2014, but the Department of, um, or the DEA, has, the Drug Enforcement Agency, has gone out of their way to sponsor drug take-back mm-hmm. days, where anything that's an expired medication would be taken back, no questions asked, disposed of properly so that patients, people that are using medications or over-the-counters supplements um, really don't have to worry about that sort of thing. Um, and it comes down to whether or not a medication is going to be harmful. The majority of medications that uh, have reached their expiration date aren't going to necessarily be harmful. They're certainly not going to be as effective as they're intended to be, and it's anybody's guess as to the loss of efficacy for each prescription. It depends on a lot of things, storage, um, whether it's been in a dry place, a humid place, if it's been kept in the refrigerator and it needs to be, or if it's been out at room temperature and in a Mm -hmm. hot car, a lot of these things that we can't necessarily predict. So in order to avoid people saying, well, it's just not going to be as effective, I'm going to go ahead and take it, we encourage people to either go to those drug take-back days um, or speak with their pharmacists, their city and county governments, because there may be regionally these take-back days that are sponsored, while the DEA um, themselves aren't necessarily doing any more sponsored take-back days. They could be locally done. So where do you find out about these take-back days, if I was interested in doing that? Uh, You certainly can ask your local pharmacist. They should have knowledge on that. Um, city and county officials generally will as well. Um, and in some places, law enforcement, you can just go to the police station and they'll have a repository right there for you. It's one thing when you're managing a pill uh, prescription that you're on for a lifetime or for an extended period of time. But what about when you add something new to the mix? What, what should patients look for when they're three or four or ten days into a medication and start saying, I don't know if this is, I think I'm getting some side effects from that. What kind of feedback should they be giving to their healthcare team? They should definitely be discussing things with their pharmacist and their prescriber Mm -hmm. and looking for the sorts of things that would help to determine whether or not that's potentially because of a new medication or not. As I alluded to, we're really in this information age where there's so much information out there. And if you look at the prescription labeling, so the um, papers that accompany the actual prescription, they look at the side effects and you see everything listed down there. It gives a lot of people um, some pause, and mm-hmm. rightly so. But a couple having, of pages of prescription <laughs> side exactly, um, rightly so, they have pause to it. But uh, it really takes someone that has a deep knowledge of both the medications and the disease state, so what we're trying to treat, um, to understand if that patient's really at high risk of having a side effect or if that's a possible side effect of the medication started. So uh, really a a dialogue um, with both the pharmacist and the prescriber and saying, 
this is something that I've noticed over the last few days. I started the medication maybe a week ago or two weeks ago or a month ago. Um, do you think it could be and what should we do about it? Uh, and it really discourage people from stopping medications without checking mm-hmm. with their prescriber um, just for the reason that it may not be related to the medication. Mm-hmm. And so if it's a good medication to use and it's not related to it, then we're stopping something that could be a benefit. So on the flip side of that is let's say you started a medication, you're feeling better, and you're supposed to take it for seven days. Do you stop it at day three if that's when you're feeling better? Another great question. Um, very common that people will come in and they'll get a medication for something acute. They have some symptoms. Maybe they um, have a cold or they have a bacterial infection, and they start those medications and immediately start to feel better. Um, really it's best to finish prescriptions that you're given uh, unless your prescriber specifically tells you that you don't need to. It's best to finish them out certainly in things like antibiotics. Um, We use them for specific amounts of time to make sure that every reason why we're having the the problem is is gone eradicated yeah some and, fo- folks people people will save them and think oh if this mm-hmm. comes back then i can mm-hmm. i've got the medication i don't have to go through going to get it but that's kind of counteractive yeah it uh, it doesn't a lot of times allow the medication to be in the body for long enough to really take care of everything you're going to start to feel better uh, with a lot of medications fairly soon but it doesn't mean you're all the way better and so that's the intention of those prescriptions is to make sure that you're all the way better um, when we do a shorter course than what we're intended to have um, a lot of times it can lead to problems down the road certainly bacteria that can get resistant to an antibiotic and we need to make sure that we're cognizant of that so when we talk about taking medication sometimes are these uh, older housewives tales in terms of you shouldn't take this medication with alcohol or you shouldn't take it on an empty stomach where do we lie on that the best best advice I think for that is to make sure that you understand what the medication is used for, what potential side effects there are, and if that could be a problem with alcohol, with taking something on an empty stomach. It goes back to the knowledge is power thing. If you understand what could potentially happen, for instance, you take a medication on an empty stomach and it causes you a lot of uh, stomach upset. Well, if we knew that we needed to take it with food, and we could have, for one, you know, prevented that from happening too. Uh, a lot of people will say, um, you know, I, I'm intolerant to that medication. I can't take it again, which may not be the, the right way to think about it. Um, so having, again, a dialogue going back and forth with the pharmacist, with the prescriber and saying, um, you know, be honest, say, um, I have a glass of wine periodically. Is that going to be a problem with this prescription? Mm-hmm. Or um, at work, it's really busy, and so a lot of times I don't get to eat lunch. Is that going to be a problem with this prescription if you want me to take it during the middle of the day? Very good. Thank you so much, Jeremy Anderson. He's a pharmacist at Mayo Clinic. It was nice to meet you, Jeremy. Thank you very much for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, developing a screening test for endometrial cancer and when the ringing in your ears won't stop, how to manage tinnitus. If you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send an email mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with the Mayo Clinic News Network headline. 
Here's another reason to get up off that couch and start moving. Research in the Journal of the American Medical Association shows vigorous exercise may be better for people over 45 than moderate exercise. Now, interval training is one way to achieve that. That's when you exercise and you go as fast as you can for spurts of 30 to 90 seconds. Here's Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine Specialist Dr. Edward Laskowski. And that interval seems to specifically challenge the heart and the body in a very beneficial way. We're seeing some very beneficial results on lipid profiles and people's metabolic profiles, their degree of aerobic capacity and their heart fitness, their cardiovascular fitness, improves very efficiently. Dr. Laskowski says research shows interval training is safe for most people. If you do it in little doses, as is recommended, it's really well tolerated by most patients. He says talk to your doctor before you start, especially if you have a medical condition. With today's Mayo Clinic News Network headline, I'm Vivian. Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar, sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Ringing, buzzing, roaring, hissing, clicking. Those are just some of the sounds that people with tinnitus report hearing. For some people, the sounds of tinnitus come and go, while for others, the sounds are present throughout their entire waking hours. You call it, uh, Tracy, tinnitus. I call it tinnitus, <laughs> but that affects about one in five people. It's not really a condition, but rather a symptom of an underlying problem. And while it can be annoying, tinnitus usually isn't serious. Well, here to talk about tinnitus or tinnitus and what causes it and how it's treated is Dr. Janeline Nischel. Dr. Nischel is an audiologist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Nischel. Thank you very much. Okay, first of all, is it tinnitus or tinnitus? It's actually pronounced both ah, ways. We're, oh, both we're both good. Very good. <laughs> well, what is tinnitus? Tinnitus is classified as basically any sound in your head. Um, it can be heard by others in some cases. Objective tinnitus is rare, but it, it is found in some patients. It must not be a very loud sound if it, it's objective tinnitus. No, it is not. Okay. Um, it, on very, very rare occasions, can be heard by your physician or okay. others if they're really close to okay. you and have really good hearing and can be caused by a couple of different things, sometimes spontaneous otoacoustic emissions, which are sounds produced by the cochlea of the inner ear. Oh, really? Um, extremely rare. But, okay. And there is also pulsatile tinnitus that sometimes correlates with your heartbeat or your vascular system. But most of the tinnitus... Most of the tinnitus is subjective, which means only you can hear it. And it can sound any variety of things. People will describe bees buzzing to a high-pitched whine to static roaring uh, music and any combination of you can have more than one sound going on at the same time that's good to know tracy because the last two years i thought i was going crazy hearing voices in my head and i thought it was the kids but actually it's the tinnitus <laughs> what's what's the most sort of common form of tinnitus that you that you see in your practice Depending on what the underlying um, medical condition may be, if it is just a symptom of hearing loss, I would say most people would describe it as a static or a high-pitched whine. And you said um, most people have the subjective, meaning they're the only people that can hear it. Are Correct. they? Are some of the patients surprised to hear it's not an actual sound that they're hearing and it's just something that is subjective? No, actually yeah. most people are very aware that only yeah. they can hear it yeah. and they're concerned about 
you know, if they are really worried about it, they're concerned mm-hmm. they jump right to, oh my gosh, do I have a brain tumor, mm-hmm. you know, or something like that, or am I going crazy, yeah. or, you know, but most, I, I really don't recall, I'm sure it exists, but I don't recall <laughs> yeah. meeting any patients that were like, what, you don't hear it? <laughs> most of them know they're the only ones that do. So if it's uh, subjective, how do you diagnose it? Um, it's pretty much just take the patient's word for it. So there's there's no medical test that you, there you do? There is no test you can measure to see if it's there. Oh, I see. Okay. You know, there, I, that's not entirely true because you probably could do some functional brain studies um, to see some different um, activity or lack of activity in certain parts of the brain. Uh, but in terms of just an everyday mm-hmm. sort of, you know, if somebody describes tinnitus, and we will just mark that as one of their their underlying conditions with just to, by taking their word for it. How many people have tinnitus? How well, common is it? It's pretty common, actually. Um, 15% of the general population has some form of tinnitus. Um, more than 70% of the hearing impaired of in- individuals have some form of tinnitus. 70%? 70 percent yep that Um, is that is much higher than i would have thought yeah and you know you can 80 to 90 percent of tinnitus patients definitely have some form of hearing loss so for most of those patients does it come and go i mean at different times of the month different times of the week or is it a constant ringing in their ears for the people that come for help Mm -hmm. um it's constant you know the people that describe um tinnitus as one of their symptoms that where it doesn't bother them, mm-hmm. they will describe that it comes and goes, but really they've just habituated to it, and they may be only aware of it when it's really quiet, or if um, something has changed in their life, you know, th- it can get worse, mm-hmm. we know, by stress or an increase of, you know, aspirin, nicotine, caffeine, alcohol can all make it worse as mm. well. A couple of weeks ago, we had Dr. Shepard in here talking about vertigo. Mm-hmm. Do vertigo and tinnitus go hand in hand, or are they two no. completely different apples and oranges? They can be completely separate. Yeah. Now, they can be combined if there's something such as Meniere's disease, which mm-hmm. is um, a combination of roaring tinnitus, fluctuating hearing loss, dizziness, and imbalance. Some people that I have known in the past that have extremely... A difficult time with the tinnitus, so it's all the time. It's very disruptive. They have a—I don't even know how to say this as, as gently as I can—but they have a really hard time with it, and even to the point of self-harm. You know, feeling right. like I, I'm not going to be able to deal yes. with this for another day. Yes. Do patients get that? They do. Yeah, they yes. do. So I'm, that's. What do you do for someone? Well. So really it's a matter of what does the patient need right now. You know, some patients who come in for tinnitus um, specifically maybe just need counseling and reassurance and some medical tests to make sure there is nothing to be worried about medically. And uh, once they realize how common it is and that there are things that you can do to manage it, that's all they need is a, mm-hmm. is a little bit of counseling and a few tests to, you know, rule things out. Other patients you can tell that are much more distressed about it are going to need more than that. There are management strategies that differ depending on what the patient needs. And, you know, we can start out by just counseling. Maybe they need hearing aids. Maybe they need some form of a tinnitus and a masker plus hearing aid. There are some cognitive retraining therapies. You know, there is biofeedback. There's uh, tinnitus retraining therapy, you know, some more longer term types of things. And any time that there is anxiety or depression, um, it, that warrants a psych r- referral. So it seems that tinnitus may be the tip of the iceberg of some underlying causes as well 
when you mentioned the the, the psychological there could aspects be, of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I can imagine how frustrating it is for somebody when there's no objective test uh, to diagnose this. Right. What is it that causes it? Is it age-related, or is it listening to too much rock and roll So there are many theories, (laughs) but basically, you know, in layman's terms, hearing is a sense that never shuts off, even when we're sleeping. So your brain is constantly getting neural stimulation from acoustic stimuli in your world, even if it's just perfectly quiet. You know, the Mm -hmm. fan might be on, the lights might be humming, you know, even when you move over in bed, Mm -hmm. you know, everything rustles and makes noise. So you're constantly being exposed to sound and your brain has been exposed to sound since you were in your mother's womb. And so if, for example, you develop hearing loss either gradually or suddenly and the brain recognizes that there is a change in that neural stimulation, it interprets that change or lack of as sound or you might say it creates its own sound in the lack or absence of sound where there used to be constant stimulation. Mm -hmm. In many, many, many cases, we are going to find some form of hearing loss on Mm -hmm. the audio. It's not always that Mm -hmm. way, but there actually can be some outer hair cell damage within the cochlea before we pick that up on the audiogram. I see. Okay. So does it actually ever go away? It does not go away in most cases. There are some cases of tinnitus which it's caused by medications, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and if we stop those medications, then yes, the tinnitus may in fact go away. However, most people that have tinnitus, it is something that never goes away and you just learn to habituate to it is the best management strategy. The vestibular rehab clinic is where that's done? No, it is not in the vestibular lab. Um, But, you know, depending on what the patient needs, you know, if it's just a single counseling session and we, you know, talk to them simply that, you know what, when you first put an engagement or a wedding ring on your finger, it drove you crazy, but now you don't even notice that it's there. Or you can live right next to an airport or a fire station, and it's like people come to visit you and say, how can you live here? And it's just when that is your constant, you just learn that that, that's your new normal, and you learn to tune out what's not important. Well, Dr. Nishal, thank you so much for bringing us up to date on tinnitus. I'm going to say it like that for the rest of my days, tinnitus. (laughs) Dr. Janeline Nichelle is an audiologist at Mayo Clinic. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, screening for endometrial cancer and risk-reducing surgery for ovarian cancer. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Endometrial cancer, that's cancer of the uterus, it's the most common cancer in women, and it's estimated that about 50,000 women in the U.S. will be diagnosed with endometrial cancer this year. Despite its prevalence, there's no screening test for endometrial cancer, but that may change. Tracy, this is fascinating. In a recent study, researchers at Mayo Clinic found that the common tampon might be used to collect evidence of developing endometrial cancer. Here to talk about a possible screening for endometrial cancer and about the risk-reducing surgery for ovarian cancer that was recently announced by actress Angelina Jolie is Dr. Jamie Bacham-Gomez. Dr. Bacham-Gomez is a gynecologic oncologist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Bacham-Gomez. Thank you. First of all, let's start off talking about the tampon. This is, as Dr. Kakar and I were saying before you got here, it's amazing that just the tampon might be a first ever screening tool for endometrial cancer. Certainly. Well, we've known for decades that 
pap smears occasionally will pick up an endometrial cancer, and that's based on abnormal cells that are shed down into the lower reproductive tract. These days, however, with evolving technology, we can pick up things that are smaller than cells, such as DNA changes, protein changes, that sort of thing. Um, And so what we did with our research is we actually looked at a DNA change called methylation, and, um, and we collected tampon samples from women who had a biopsy-proven cancer of the uterus or endometrial cancer, as well as samples from women with uh, that were undergoing hysterectomy for a benign indication, but an indication mm-hmm. for having their uterus removed. Mm-hmm. Um, and we compared the levels of 12 different genes, methylation levels of 12 different genes between the two groups. And we found that among nine genes, there was a higher level of methylation in those with endometrial cancer compared to benign. So there's just enough cells on that tampon that it shows that there is cancer present. Is that that's what's happening? Well, we're picking up cells, but we're also picking up DNA, okay. so fractions of cells, wow. the innards of cells. So that's why it's taken until this point in medical history, I guess, is because you can look at the DNA now, whereas you know, 100 years ago, that was not part of what people were looking for. Correct. Yeah, with the Pap smear, it was really just cells, and that was a that was in 1928. Sure. So. This really could be a paradigm shift in how endometrial cancer is uh, diagnosed because from my understanding, most patients who present with endometrial cancer, it tends to be later on uh, when they uh, in the disease process. Can you talk about what the main symptoms are of endometrial cancer? Sure. So about 90% of women who present with an endometrial cancer have abnormal bleeding, uh, whether it's perimenopausal or postmenopausal bleeding. Um, fortunately, most endometrial cancers are detected at early stage. So about 75% are detected at early stage. But there are some very aggressive cancers of the, of the endometrium that even when they're pr- diagnosed at an early stage have a high lethality. Um, and then there is also the 25% of women that will be diagnosed with an advanced stage endometrial cancer, which has a high mortality rate, um, and their presenting symptom may only be abnormal bleeding. So mm-hmm. so there's definitely potential here to, uh, I mean, ideally, ultimately, we want to impact survival from this cancer with the screening test. How far along are we from the screening test becoming the new standard? Well, it's still in development. Um, What we published uh, in February of 2015 um, was our pilot study on this. So it includes 38 women with an endometrial cancer, 28 women with benign uh, reasons for having a hysterectomy. And uh, we we are only the second pilot study to ever be published on this. The first one was about 11 years ago. Hmm. Uh, so between then and now, there really hasn't been much done looking at the tampon for endometrial cancer, um, even though, as I mentioned, most of these women present with abnormal bleeding and um, and are using hygiene products such as the tampon to manage that. Hmm. So what's the next stage in terms of your research taking this forward? Certainly. Um, so we are looking at new genes. We're doing some additional discovery efforts, um, comparing cancer, endometrial cancer to the benign um, epithelium of the lining of the uterus uh, to discover additional genes that we can test in these same samples, um, as well as the fact that we have an ongoing clinical trial enrolling women who are coming in with abnormal bleeding that may represent endometrial cancer. Mm. And the reason we're enrolling, and this is going to be about a, a, a thousand women, we've accrued almost 500 now. The reason that we're doing this is that we want to make sure that we're truly identifying spontaneous shedding of DNA 
and cancer, hmm. um, you know, basically a signal of cancer in these patients. Well, as your research goes along, you'll have to keep sure to keep us posted Certainly. here on Mayo Clinic Radio. Now, since you're here, um, I had to, it's two different, we're completely shifting gears mm-hmm. here from endometrial cancer to ovarian cancer mm-hmm. because recently Angelina Jolie just announced that she had had her ovaries removed because of her genetic disposition is that what is that what was happening with her situation correct so um, she inherited a gene that put her at higher risk for developing an ovarian cancer um, in addition to fallopian tube cancer so she had both of her tu- both her tubes and her ovaries removed uh, i mean it's called a risk Reducing viral-salpingo-ophorectomy. So risk-reducing surgery is what mm-hmm. we call this. Correct. And um, two years ago, she had both of her breasts removed, also because of the BRCA. Mm-hmm. Um, how, explain how these all go together and, and the importance of her going public with her decision. So ovarian cancer and breast cancer can travel together, and we call that hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome. Um, it can be caused by a multitude of genes. Um, the most common ones are BRCA1 and BRCA2. Um, Angelina Jolie has been uh, vocal about the fact that she inherited the BRCA1 gene, and that is the reason why she underwent risk-reducing surgery to remove breasts as well as to remove both tubes and ovaries. Um, and what was your second question again? Remind me. Um, just the importance of oh, her going public with that certainly. decision. Yeah. So, I mean, this is not something new. This is not something novel. Um, we've known about the BRCA genes since the 90s. Um, we know that women with BRCA1 or BRCA2 or um, these other more recently identified genes put them at higher risk for ovarian cancer. Um, and as a gynecologic oncologist, I care for women with ovarian cancer every single day. Most of the time, about 75% of the time, it's diagnosed at an advanced stage, which is highly lethal. About two-thirds of women that are diagnosed at advanced stage die of the disease. We don't have a screening test for it. Um, detecting it early is often a matter of luck. Um, and, and even though women at higher risk for an ovarian cancer are recommended to be to undergo ultrasounds and occasionally have, uh, actually the recommendation is that they have an ultrasound every six months um, and have CA-125 blood tests drawn every six months, those tests have not been proven to decrease mortality of the disease. Mm. The only thing that has been scientifically proven to decrease mortality of the, from the disease from ovarian cancer is to prophylactically or have a risk-reducing surgery to remove the tubes and ovaries. So that's obviously very alarming. So a lot of our uh, listeners out there, should they be routinely undergoing screening for this BRCA gene? Well, the most important thing is to listen to your family history and understand what your family history is. So if you come from a family that has, or if you have a family that has um, a lot of breast cancer, even one ovarian cancer in the family, the most important thing to do is to consider seeing a genetic counselor. They can put together your family pedigree, and they can come up with an estimate as far as what your risk is of having one of these genes or potentially one of the other genes. We don't recommend directly going to a genetic test because it's important to understand what the risks are of having a negative test and a, or a positive test. Um, so family history is extremely important. Personal history is also important. Women who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer, one in five of them will have a gene that actually caused it. Hmm. So we, the, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network 
guidelines recommend that any woman with an ovarian cancer, with an epithelial ovarian cancer, which is the most common type, be seen by a genetic counselor and consider being tested for a, one of these genes. It's great information. Thank you so much for stopping by You're with welcome. us today. We've been talking with Mayo Clinic Gynecologic Oncologist Dr. Jamie Bacham gomez Thanks for being here. Thank you. That's our program for this week. For more information, visit Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman. Our social media editor is Audrey Castletine. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar, sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.